This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Patrick Maguire here, in instead of Matt Chorley, for another two shows this week. And if I do say so myself, today's podcast is a cracker. We're going to be talking who, what and where next for the SNP with the foremost experts on Scottish politics in just a moment. But first, it's time for today's columnist panel. James Marriott and Manveen Rana join me for a fascinating discussion across politics, publishing and more. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, today I'm joined by Manveen Rana. Hello, Manveen. Hi. Patrick, it's quite quite unusual to hear you defeated by a political fact. I really enjoyed that. I know. I mean, look, I'm heartbroken. Especially with one... It's it's always the the classic quizzes lament, (laughs) isn't it? Like, oh, I did know that, I did know that, but I didn't... You know, it's funny the things my brain discards. You know, I could tell you all manner of... I could recite all manner of... Let me seamlessly segue to our next guest, James Marriott Collins, I can quote. Uh, he joins us in the studio. Hello, James. Hello, yeah, um, I'm with Manveen. You've gone down on my estimation since yeah. that. I'm, I'm, really I'm shocked, shocked, frankly. I'm fallible just like everybody else. I'm fallible just like everybody else. It's a sad a sad day when you realise that Patrick Maguire is... <laughs> no, I, I'm not sure I'm going to recover. Uh, look, it happens, it happens to Should all Should we just of leave? Maybe, maybe we just give up now. Yeah, I'll just, feel, I'll, just, I'll just try and recite as many members of the, uh, of the old Liberal Party as I possibly can. That will reassure us, I think. You know, <laughs> I mean, that'll fill an hour. Yeah, probably. You know, well, uh, the Liberals did f- terribly in the uh, in the mid twentieth century, so it'd actually probably fill about ten minutes. Sadly, um, I'm just sorry. Now, I'm, uh, you you mustn't get me onto this subject because now all I want to talk about <laughs> is uh, is the uh, is the Liberal Liberals Party without uh, giving away the answer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, that's what we're not here to talk about the Liberals, although we are here to talk about politicians. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon resigned yesterday. I'm sure even James, you wouldn't have missed that. No, I no, I was all over it. You're all over it. Yeah, not not always the most, um, as you say, uh, assiduous and granular political observer of the Times <laughs> columnists. But yes, this one floated into Usually, my awareness. You know, you, your head, you popped your head out of a first edition copy of Eminent Victorians <laughs> and then uh, and noticed Nicholas Sturgeon. Something happened in the 21st century, yeah. <laughs> but, she, but she said yesterday, something, a really striking comment Nicholas Sturgeon made was that Modern politics was a brutal place for a woman in particular to exist. She'd had no privacy. She'd spent her entire working life, adult life in politics. Um, there was a nice line where she said, you know, my, my niece and nephew were babies when I became, uh, when the SNP came to government. Now they're 17 and 18 and that's the last 
point in your life where you'd want your aunt to have more time for you. But it got me thinking about the way politics works, especially in an age of not even 24-hour media, you know, of hourly news cycles, of social media, of, of no privacy. And is it the best way to do politics? Is she right, Manveen, that politics is is now a even more brutal blood sport than it has been for, for centuries? Yeah, I mean... Um... Uh, you know, I think on the one hand, it's important to remember it's always been brutal. You know, nothing has fundamentally changed. <laughs> yeah, it is partly the point. But um, also, you know, politicians tend to feel it's more brutal when their careers are about, to, you know, the trajectory is just getting to the point where, uh, you know, they're, they're no longer winning that particular battle. So, you know, um, Nicola Sturgeon's poll ratings were going down. It was the same with the Cinder Ardern. So it's important to bear some of that in mind. But I do think... Yeah, I mean, you know, qualitatively, it has definitely become far worse now because of social media. And I think she's right to make the point about it being worse for a woman. You know, Yvette, Yvette Cooper often talked about the number of death threats she was getting on a regular basis. Um, you know, her, not just her, her, her family. You, you do sort of realise that suddenly it's open season. And for anybody on social media, whether you're a politician, whether you stood for, for, for a position or whether you're related to one, you know, it can be really brutal. And is that the best way of getting the best policies? Probably not. Is it, James? Is it the best way? No, not at all. I mean, this is probably one of my more unpopular political opinions is that we need to be nicer to politicians. I recall once seeing on Twitter a video of someone following David Cameron around, I think it was a waitress, obviously being David Cameron, just filming him as he was trying to scan his stuff in, you know, the kind of bagging area. And I was, you know, thinking, that is a horrendous pressure for a politician to live under. And to to want that kind of endless scrutiny and contempt you have to be a little bit mad to want to put up with that and i think it's sort of mm. i think it is dangerous for the kind of politicians we get i think there's another factor here which is cultural and i think it's maybe worse in britain than it perhaps is in other countries because we have a very long um tradition of a more robust um less deferential um more kind of satirical politics that you know dates back you know i think probably as far as the 18th century we don't view politicians as they do in france as these kind of you know superior you know slightly awe-inspiring you know superior beings the american president has a little bit of that aura the president of france and i think you know that robust um you know knockabout political culture which has been very good for britain you know for a long time now we've kind of sunk into this kind of social media thing and this sort of contempt and cynicism about politicians and our, 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 our you know our perception that we have a right to every aspect of their private lives and a right to kind of mock them and abuse them all the time under any circumstances, I think is probably, you know, ultimately going to become dangerous for us because who is, you know, what competent person is going to want to enter that fray? Do you agree, Mavine? I mean, I, I, you know, like James, I actually think we're quite lucky to have had that sort of system. We're lucky we don't have the same deference that they have in France and America towards politicians. And I think it's sort of a core part of our system. You know, we don't have... A written constitution. It's always been up to us to hold our own politicians to account. And I think that's where a lot of that culture comes from. It is just, you know, it is about accountability. It is about trying to get the better version of politics at the end of it. But I do think, I thought it was quite striking that she sort of said she couldn't even nip out for a coffee during her political career, you know, while she's first minister. And I think that the danger of that is that you become quite, quite sort of separate from mm. normal life and from normal people. And you will only be surrounded by people who are part of your political team. You know, you're not actually getting a lot of normal experiences. And therefore, I think it makes it much harder to make decisions for ordinary people. And I think there is a real danger in that, in being sort of cut off from normal life. Um, I, I thought that was the most alarming part. But she also said, 
to sort of give the flip side of this, the only way to do a job like leading a government properly is to give all of oneself to it. And I, I think you've alighted on a really interesting point there, Manveen, which is, and this is a criticism that's often made of Nicola Sturgeon in particular and the SNP in general, is if you have, uh, not just Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, lots of political parties have faced this criticism at one time or another, if you have uh, power exercised or policy formulated by a tight circle, a clique, uh, or a clack of followers, then naturally uh, you're going to be insulated from criticism, constructive criticism you might face in the real world, and um, government good government suffers as a result. Yeah, and if, if that's your entire political career, you know, as, as she sort of said, it's been years now, I think it's very easy to sort of become sidelined into a work which is, you know, into, into a world which is entirely a political village and to become for it to become much harder for you to understand where most people are. So I think in some ways it's quite healthy that she's she's stepping back. And I think it's a healthy lesson for a lot of politicians to sort of think about about that balance. Uh, James, would you ever run for parliament or elected office? It sounds utterly hideous. No, it sounds awful. Because <laughs> then we wouldn't have nice chats on the radio. You'd have to grill me and ask me about my principles and, you know... I, I mean, James, for what it's worth, I'd vote for you. Well, that's very... I would vote for you. I would vote for Patrick as well. Oh, I'd vote for all, we should we should all we should even all, though he forgot should start uh, a political a party. Oh, <laughs> actually, that is true. No, I wouldn't vote for Patrick. Don't think he's got the requisite political knowledge. His, his, faculties, liberal, are anyway. his faculties are deserting him already. Maguire's <laughs> yeah. no longer up to it. Maguire's <laughs> no longer up to it. Um, let's move on. Um, you know, staying on topic, really, the impact of social media on how we live our lives on our respect for other people's privacy. Um, the case of Nicola Bully has obviously been dominating the headlines for a couple of weeks. And there was the press conference yesterday that was rather overshadowed by uh, Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, understandably. But one of the striking things the police in the Nicola Bully case have said, um, you know, they said yesterday that there's no evidence of a third party, there's no evidence of foul play. They spoke about uh, Nicola Bully's uh, spe- uh, specific vulnerabilities, her, her issues with alcohol. Um, but another thing they said was that the number of amateur sleuths and TikTokers and social media uh, detectives descending on St Michael's in the Wire in Lancashire had been really distressing to the family and was hindering the investigation. And I think that's another interesting uh, avenue, isn't it, if we're talking, Manveen, about how social media affects our behaviour and affects other people. We're seeing almost a totally new phenomenon here, which is you have an official police investigation and almost immediately the entire force of social media is focused on their investigation, Nicola Bully's uh, nearest and dearest, and uh, and the local area, spinning an entirely different narrative. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think this is, it's it's pretty shocking. We've never seen anything quite like this before, and it feels quite dystopian. Um, you know, awful for Nicola Bully and her family and her children, you know, at the centre of this, who already have the shock of of not knowing what's happened to their mother. And suddenly, in this tiny, you know, this quiet village, um, you suddenly have all these TikTokers turning up. Um, we've actually done a podcast on this. So Stories of Our Times Tomorrow is exactly about this. And and Daryl Morris from Times Radio has actually been out to speak to some of these TikTokers. And we'll, we'll hear some of that on, on, on the podcast. But it's it's alarming. You know, they are turning up to, uh, you know, what what could be treated as a scene of a crime really you know we don't know what's happened but you know they're turning up to this one bench which is where she was last seen and they're shooting videos of themselves and you know it's incredibly distressing to everybody in the village they're trying to get you know salacious bits of gossip they found a glove at one point and you know it's it's really alarming to see the police in an official investigation you know it's three weeks now um time surely is of the essence and they're having to waste it 
talking about uh, a glove that was found by a TikToker and the fact that it's not even relevant uh, in an official press conference. It does feel like this is a new phenomenon and the police doesn't quite know how to respond to it. So it felt like a lot of their response yesterday, that press conference was just lurching between responses to TikTok videos. You know, they kept talking about things that had been suggested in TikTok videos and explaining why they weren't true. And it felt like after the press conference, when there was this sort of um, unexpected, you know, extra bit of news about Nicola, Nicola Bully's private life, which I, you know, feels, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it because I just feel like it's sort of oversharing some very personal circumstances. It felt like that wasn't intended to come out, that mm. it certainly hadn't come out in the press conference. And again, it feels like they're sort of responding to TikTok. You know, they, they're perhaps watching all of the social media a little too closely they they sort of saw people responding to their press conference and you know new wild theories emerging and being you know being shared thousands of times and, and spreading and as a result they're sort of they're they're blundering around responding to these things when they sh- probably shouldn't be and they're saying things that they shouldn't and aren't that things that aren't helpful to the investigation but are quite hurtful I would have thought to the people right in the middle of it and it's interesting as well isn't it James because. At the, at the heart of this, you have the role of social media and society, which we were talking about before. And you could say, look, it's always healthy, and we do enough of it on this station, to question people in authority, to question official narratives. That's not to sound, sound conspiratorial. It's just, just how a democracy can and ought to work. Uh, and also, social media has democratised communication. But do you think, and this is probably a prime example, it has made it harder for, you know the authorities to to govern or to set an official narrative where they need to and to communicate openly with the public because as you were saying about politics often social media sort of imbues us with a cynicism and a bad faith and we can never take anything at face value and everybody is sort of everybody is sort of equal and you know i i see on on tiktok and and twitter you know every utterance from nicola bully's partner is poured over by amateur sleuths and that's when you see it on social media, it's given equal credence to a statement by the police or, or, uh, or you know, journalist at the Times or whatever. Social media does tend to make us into uh, into cynics who view everything in bad faith sometimes, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think it's that kind of you know, that word democratization, which you know obviously sounds entirely positive, but actually, you know, you can't democratize a police investigation because you know some you know some people are professional trained police investigators with years doing things like this some people are just randos off twitter with opinions those two you know those two opinions are absolutely not the not 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 the same but i think you know social media gives the illusion that they are because you know a police force has a twitter account some random guy called dave has a twitter account there's no you know it really reduces that sense of you know authority and you know the the general the general public. I think the other problem with social media, not to sound too, you know, grumpy and old fashioned about it, is that I think it induces a kind of narcissism, and it makes everybody think they're the centre of the world. Mm. And you see all this stuff floating down your timeline, and it's all aimed at you. And you think, well, I'm kind of the centre of this, aren't I? And then you think, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I'm seeing all this stuff. Maybe <laughs> I've got a view on this, you know, on this police investigation. And people find it very hard to accept that you know they're not the centre of the world, and you know, other people do know more than them. And you can't just sort of pull theories out of wherever. Yeah, I find it. I find it very depressing. And also, you can obviously see for the police, like the pressure of you know people all over social media. You know, just seeing those thousands and thousands and thousands of comments, very hard to you know ignore or deal with. I think they should ignore it, but you know, 
it's hard to ignore. And the natural human response is, is not to and to, you know, want to respond to everything. Let's talk about the excellent column you've written in this morning's Times. Uh, the headline, pretty punchy as ever. Much to your dismay, I'm sure. <laughs> Niceness, not Maoism, gets booked cancelled. Nigel Bigger's book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, out this month, was dropped by its initial publisher, Bloomsbury. Uh, the BBC journalist Hannah Barnes failed to find a mainstream publisher for her book, Time to Think, a report of the events that led to the closure of the Tavistock Gender Clinic. Uh, and that's published this week by Swift Press, a small firm specialising in controversial subjects. Obviously, it was serialised in the Sunday Times last weekend. Uh, James, what's going on? Is is this a a, a conspiracy by uh, woke left-wingers at publishing houses? <laughs> um, I think it's more complicated than that. I think this phenomenon of publishers dropping books because they're, you know, viewed as politically too risky is extraordinary. It's, it's so new. It's only about 10 years since it started happening. So many cases, Woody Allen's memoir... Mm. Uh, was dropped by its publisher Hachette in America. Um, the famous case, the case of Kate Clanchy, the teacher um, who worked with refugee children to write poems, who was accused of racism on Twitter, and her book was dropped by her publisher, I think, Picador. Picador, yeah. Um, and this stuff, you know, and the, all these books, you know, being sort of unpublished or depublished or dropped by publishers it is really fascinating. And, you know, a lot of the commentary around it, I think, is interesting because, you know, this phenomenon we call cancel culture, it really gets into the mechanisms of how cancel, you know, how do things get cancelled? How do things work? There's a kind of conspiracist view, I think, that inside publishing houses, there are cabals of activists who are, you know, kind of agitating and, you know, making their voices known and really kicking up a fuss to get these books dropped. And the argument of my column was speaking to people in publishing. Um, that's kind of not how it works. And a lot of it is much more low-key and much more to do with nervousness, second guessing. As you were saying to me earlier, actually, we were talking before the radio, you know, so much of this is just about embarrassment. It's about, you know, you've got a kind of, you work in a you know, very progressive, very liberal publishing house. You've got this book that you think will sell, um, you know, by Nigel Bigar, his, you know, to, you know sort of um, apologia for, you know, some parts of the British Empire. You just feel embarrassed to take that book into, 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 in, into, a, into, a, into an acquisition meeting. And therefore you don't. And therefore... Um, you know, the breadth of subjects that publishers can deal with begins to shrink. And, you know, I think we really haven't got to lose sight of the larger principle here, which is that, you know, one of the key factors of living in a democracy is that we have to, our society has to conduct debate to itself. The only way we can do this at any great length is through books. And that's just like the most, one of the most vital things of living in democracy is that people can publish books that disagree with each other. And any whenever that begins to even mildly not happen in, in publishing houses, I think it's a kind of dangerous place to begin to go down. Do you agree, Manveen? Do you agree that um, embarrassment, more than any, um, any sort of ideological design, is often the greatest inhibitive force when it comes to this sort of thing, when it comes to not saying what you really think or questioning everything that you think everybody else thinks on a, on a contentious subject? Oh, I think so. I mean, particularly in Britain, it's, it's the British way. I mean, mm. I don't think it would be the same in, in American publishing houses. Um, but here, I think, you know, I think James is right. I think we're always sort of very polite and very keen to be considerate and to think about how others might react to something. And in a way, that's kind of where wokeism started. You know, it started with the it's not really right to to say certain things out loud anymore. It's, you know, try and be a bit more considerate. And then it's sort of become a little bit more militant. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that, you know, you do have these publishing houses being very wary, being very worried about the reaction, particularly amongst their own staff, if they are publishing these books. Because, you know, as as James says in his column, you often hear more about the ones that have had trouble being published 
because they are still massive hits and they get an awful lot of coverage. Um, all the ones that he cited, you know, a Nigel Bigar or, or or the the recent one on um, on uh, trans issues. You know, they're, they're getting a lot of news coverage as well. And at some point, the publishing houses, you know, which are effectively businesses, these are books that garner a lot of attention that will be sold, whether it's for outrage reasons or for people who agree with them. Um, and so, you know, the, culturally, they'll they'll have they'll have to be a shift because. <laughs> Because uh, ultimately, you're only going to make a profit if you are if you are still considering publishing some of these books. That was James Marriott and Manveen Rana there. Remember, you can read James and Manveen in The Times every week. Just head to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box and get yourself a digital subscription. Manveen 2 hosts our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times. You can get that on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcast from. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Who, what and where next for the Scottish National Party, for independence and the future of the union? As Nicola Sturgeon takes her leave, those are the questions Westminster and Holyrood are asking with a new urgency. Who is the right person to rebuild a party divided and left without its best ever communicator? What should they do about the second referendum Nicola Sturgeon never did quite make happen? And where does this leave the Tories and Labour? Now, let's take each of those big questions in turn, starting with Katie Balls, the political editor of The Spectator. Morning, Katie. Morning. Uh, You've written in uh, The Spectator this week about the reaction in Westminster and where the SNP might go next. Politically speaking, and there's similarly uh, similar reports on the front page of The Times, who wins from this news? Is this good news for the Tories? Their toughest opponent is on the way out and the future of the union may be looking a little bit rosier. So I think it's partial good news if you're a unionist conservative in the sense that I think there is a cross-party consensus. And again, you always be a little bit careful when there's one of those, um, that if you are a unionist, this ultimately the SNP have lost, you know, one of their best assets. And that is good for the unionist cause. However, once you get through the first initial, I think, minutes of a conversation with um a Scottish unionist uh, in the in the Tory party, um, you then get to the, oh, wait, um, because it could also be very good news for Labour. And uh, as you know, Patrick, ultimately, if Labour want to win a majority, but particularly a large majority, um, making gains in Scotland, repairing on those losses um, that they have experienced is, is really key to doing that. And if the SNP becomes riven of infighting, struggles uh, to keep that coalition together, 
and has a leader who even you know is just not as good a communicator as Nicola Sturgeon um that is more likely to benefit Scottish Labour than see all those votes go to the Scottish Tories. How would you sum up the reaction from within cabinet and within uh, the shadow cabinet yesterday was it champagne corks popping? Yeah, I noticed when news of the press conference broke, I was calling around because we had to, I think, in the space of two hours, completely tear up our cover and start again. So, so, so um, of the spectators, it was quite frenzied calling. And there was some caution at first. And, you know, I had one Labour politician say to me, don't, you know, don't crack the champagne out just yet. Um, none of the unionists are because we don't know yet what exactly she's going to announce. Maybe this is another ploy by Nicola Sturgeon. They couldn't quite believe that Nicola Sturgeon would really choose to quit both roles, first mm. minister and party leader. Um, and therefore there was some nerves. And I think when it became clear she, she really was doing this, um, I think if you spoke to figures in cabinet, they were just generally, I think, relief and, to be honest, surprise, I think in number 10 too, at the pace by which she has just chosen to go. Um, so, so I think the general mood, both in shadow cabinet and cabinet, is one of um, happy relief. I just think that when you start to drill it down and you speak to figures on both sides, this has the potential to be much better for Labour than it does Tories in terms of the electoral map. And just before I let you go, Katie, there's no obvious successor. That's the striking thing. And public awareness of the contenders is pretty low. But is there anyone in particular, um, the government and the opposition in Westminster, fear or think would be a formidable opponent? Well, I think it's tricky because, as you say, there's not an obvious figure and they all have different things. So, you know, I think Joanna Cherry is someone who lots of Tory politicians think is the most formidable. They don't like going against her. You know, she is a Casey legal mind. Um, but at the same time, Joanna Cherry clearly has clashed with her party over the gender recognition reform. And she's an um, MP think, too, which makes it more difficult for her yeah, exactly, to exactly. make the jump to Holyrood. Then Kate Forbes, I think, is someone they would be worried about, um, the S&P finance minister currently on, uh, who's been on maternity leave, because she, I think she is someone who they think could actually maybe attract some potential Tory voters over. If you think about the fact that she, you know, has quite traditional values, uh, she's a Christian, they, they wonder if that would eat into their base. But again, that could then fracture someone, uh, the current S&P voters. So I think those are the two names more when you speak to, um, t- the Tories about who they're talking about. Um, but there is a sense right now where I think, um, there's not particularly um, there's not particular trepidation about any candidate because it just is such a, such a mixed bag. Well, Katie Balls, political editor of the Spectator, thanks very much for joining us to talk through uh, what next uh, for the SNP as far as Westminster is concerned and who or what they fear uh, going forward. Cautious optimism and happy relief in the cabinet and shadow cabinet, as Katie Balls said. But what next and who next? Let's head to Scotland now and speak opinion polls with Dr Emily Gray, director of Ipsos Scotland. Morning, Emily. Do we have Emily Gray? Yes, good morning. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. And we'll get the very latest from Holyrood with Kieran Andrews, Scottish political editor at The Times. Morning, Kieran. Morning, Patrick. Kieran, um, Kieran firstly, congratulations on making it through yesterday uh, alive. Uh, you, sound, uh, you sound bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm sure you don't feel it. But if you, can, if you can bear it, if you can dare to contemplate another couple of weeks of this. Tell us what the next steps are. Nicola Sturgeon has resigned. She's told uh, the head honchos of the SNP to set a leadership election in that train, uh, in train rather. Uh, what sort of time frame are we looking at? Patrick, I'm always bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> yes, of course um, you are. The, the SNP's ruling National Executive Committee will meet this evening, we think about half past six, to decide 
exactly the timetable for the leadership election. We've been told to expect around about a six-week contest, but again, the details will be ironed out with that this evening. And probably once that is done, we'll start to see candidates formally announcing and formally putting their heads above the parapet. There's there's a lot of discussions going on just now. People are being lobbied to stand. Some potential candidates, we understand, are flying back from their holidays to to start sounding out people. So, you know, the, the backroom machinations are on the go just now. But I think once we have the exact details of how long this contest will take and what form it will take, then we will start to see people pop up and stick their hats in the ring or indeed rule themselves out with the the kind of grandiose statements that we've come to expect from (laughs) politicians who like to make themselves sound important when they're not going for a job of any sort of of real importance. It's interesting, isn't it? This is the first contested SNP, if it is indeed contested, which we assume it will be because of the divisions within the SNP, the first contested SNP leadership election in 20 years. Will this mean they have to cook up new rules that reflect, um, you know, 20 years ago, the SNP had a handful of MPs in Westminster and even, and you know, relatively few compared to now, uh, MP, MSPs in Holyrood. Now they've got massive parliamentary groups in both the Commons and at Holyrood. Um, is that going to be a different, dyna- a difficult dynamic to manage in terms of who gets a vote on what? Or is it a simple case of they throw it open to, to the grassroots? Do they have to work out all of these procedural questions before we even get on to personalities, as we will in just a second? It's a one-member, one-vote um, election. That has always been the case for SNP elections. And albeit there hasn't been um, a, a leadership election, as you say, in, in, in 20 years, Nicholas Sturgeon was obviously coronated as um, as SNP leader in 2014, there have been a few votes to be deputy leader of the party, mm. which I suspect will be the model that will be followed in terms of how to both take in the votes, count those votes from the, the kind of vastly expanded number of members since the independence referendum, but also how to get the candidates, presuming there is more than one, which I think is extremely likely, uh, out and around the various branches to... Um, you know, to, to hold debates in, in front of uh, members and uh, in different parts of the country. Right, I'm going to give you a list of runners and riders now, and I expect you, Kieran, uh, as uh, in the tradition of uh, runners and riders, I want your pithy sentence summary for a lay listenership across the UK that may not be <laughs> as familiar as this uh, with these people as uh, as you are. Right, I'll start with Keith Brown, who's the deputy leader of the SNP, the deputy leader of the SNP, I should say. Tell me about him. What are his chances? He is just a secretary and as deputy, deputy leader of the SNP is um, in touch with the grassroots and is effectively spokesman for the National, the pro-independence newspaper in Scotland, which gives him a reach that um, a few of the other contenders don't have. Uh, Kate Forbes, Economy Secretary, Finance Secretary, uh, she has been the name that most people in Westminster have been talking about. Uh, 32, I believe, just coming back off maternity leave. Does she really want it? Well, Kate Forbes is well respected by business, which is not something you can say about almost anyone else in the SNP. She's got a pretty broad reach um, politically in, on the, from the centre ground, but as you say, she is not quite back from maternity leave yet. She was planning to come back in April. Will she be tempted to come back early to throw herself into what could be a political bloodbath? It's, it's a big decision for her. 
Uh, who's next? Another name who'll be familiar to listeners who follow Westminster closely. Angus Robertson, who was the SNP's leader in Westminster for some time, now their culture secretary. Well, Angus Robertson um, tweeted his congratulations to Nicola Sturgeon from Antigua in the Canary Islands <laughs> yesterday. So it suggests there's um, a bit of organising for him to do. He's potentially caught a bit on the hop. Angus Robertson was an impressive performer in the Commons. Um, he, he was eloquent and often did well holding various Conservative Prime Ministers to account. There have been some concerns, including from people who are loyal to Nicola Sturgeon, about his performance in Cabinet since he was elected to the Scottish Parliament. Uh, Humza Youssef, the Health Secretary. Humza Youssef has had a pretty difficult time recently um, because the health service, as it is across the UK, is really struggling in Scotland. There's big issues there. Again, people around Nicola Sturgeon have, have not always been entirely complimentary about how he's performed in his brief but again, he is a good communicator. And if he steps forward, that is that is something that will be important that people will be looking for in the next SNP leader. And one more name who has already declared or made clear that they do intend to stand, may not be known to many listeners, Ash Reagan. Ash Reagan uh, was Community Safety Minister and quit over the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, the, the controversial bill that was brought forward by Nicola Sturgeon to make it easier for people to, to change their gender she is in many ways an unknown quantity. She will obviously have a, a weak code of support because of her opposition to the bill. But it'll be pretty tough, I think, for her to make a big breakthrough. But, you know, everyone said that about Jeremy Corbyn. And just two more names before I bring in. Emily Gray to crunch the numbers on this, uh, Kieran. What chance an MP getting this gig? Stephen Flynn, Westminster leader. Joanna Cherry is another name that's mentioned, another prominent critic of the gender reforms. What what about their chances? Well, Stephen Flynn has already ruled himself out of running for this. He says it needs to be an MSP because that is... Um, because the next SNP leader should be First Minister as well. That makes it difficult for Joanna Cherry. Um, albeit she also has a constituency within the party as... Um, as a you know, an arch rebel, an arch critic of Nicola Sturgeon, and a, a good performer in the House of Commons, so she is an as an outside bet may pick up some support, but it could be that she lends her backing to someone like Ash Reagan, and actually brings her supporters in behind another candidate at Hollywood rather than going for the top job herself. That's interesting. We've we're sketching out here some of the some of the battle lines gender whether you know independent strategy would be another big one continuity with Sturgeon or otherwise Emily as a polling expert you're faced with a a group of emerging successors have you conducted any polling yet I am sure you will see lots of polling on on possible successors over the over the coming days, um, but you know it should be remembered. I think that Nicola Sturgeon get, Nicola Sturgeon going means that there's big shoes to fill. So although her approval ratings had dipped a bit in recent months with the gender recognition reforms and divisions over independent strategy, she was still by some way the most popular of the Scottish party leaders among the public and when you look at Kate Forbes you know who's been talked about as one one possibility as you say when we last polled on Kate Forbes back in October last year she had a negative approval rating of minus 10 among the public um, so around in one in four were favorable towards her what and about that was of... less popular than Sturgeon at the time wow what about some of those other contenders we've just just heard about what the name recognition um, in other polling has been has been quite low. Have you found the same thing? 
it's it's too soon to say, but you would expect that name recognition and that visibility to change pretty quickly as candidates bring to begin to set out their stalls. So you know, I think the Scottish public will quickly get to know um, the the people who put their who who put themselves forward. And your latest poll, one of the big uh, the big missteps Nicola Sturgeon is perceived to have made in in recent weeks months is her is her plan to make the next general election a de facto referendum on independence your latest poll for ipsos in scotland asked that question do you want the next general election to be a vote in independence what did you find yeah, I mean, this is a big challenge for for whoever does succeed, Nicola Sturgeon. Of course, they, the SNP would want to be in a position where there was a sustained majority of the public in favour of independence to be confident of winning a second referendum if indeed they are able to secure one. Um, but of course, the party is divided on this issue um, of independence strategy. And when you look both at the at the public and among the SNP's own voters, actually, there's no clear consensus on what the best thing is for the SNP to do from here. So around one in three SNP voters tell us that treating the next general election as a de facto referendum is the best option. Next best is treating the next Holyrood election as a de facto referendum. But you still have a significant proportion who say neither of those. So yeah, the, the, nobody, nobody is really clear on the way forward. And it will be for Nicola Sturgeon's successor to set out what the route is for the SNP towards independence now. And that'll be a big topic of debate in the leadership election to come. Dr Emily Gray, Director of Polster Ipsos Scotland, thanks very much for joining us on this morning's big thing to sketch out what the Scottish public think about the leadership election to come that will decide the leader of their next government. And we also got the very latest on who might be in the running from Kieran Andrews, who is Scottish political editor. Now, earlier I spoke to Jim Sillers, the former deputy leader of the SNP and a party grandee. I started by asking him where Nicola Sturgeon went wrong. I think um, she's made strategic failures. After the Brexit vote, for example, she declared that uh, we're going to have a referendum and she was going to achieve a referendum. And in a sense, the SNP became the referendum party rather than the independence party. This was not made aware of south of the border. And the result was there's a policy vacuum uh, has developed. I mean, if I went to Nocador this morning, and an old age pensioner said to me, what would happen to my pension and independence? I actually couldn't tell her. Or somebody said, how do you handle the currency? I actually couldn't tell her from a party point of view. So we went, we've now had six wasted years in seeking a referendum, which a first law student would tell her it's not possible for the Holyrood Parliament to do it on its own. Um, because you haven't got the necessary majority that gives you the moral credibility. So we've had six wasted years there. Then the other strategic mistake she made fairly recently was taking the Greens into government. Now, these are fairly, you know, I regard them as being wired to the moon, and they're zealots. And so we get the gender recognition bill, and you get amendments put in the parliament that you don't have sexual predators who are already convicted, able to self-ID, and that, that's rejected. So I think what um, these were two major strategic errors she made on the referendum and bringing the Greens actually into government. That, Aside from that, on the tactical side, the actual running of the Scottish government hasn't been very good. I mean, we 
we can't get two ferries built and sailed. Two ferries now cost more than the cost of building the Holyrood Parliament in the very first place. The, the Greens have put a stop to major road building so that the A9, which takes from the central belt to the highlands, only has 11 miles of dual carriageway, but it was actually promised to go all the way not so very long ago. The education system is in serious trouble and the National Health Service, she's appointed the last two, whom everybody knows, uh, weren't up to being health ministers. So on the domestic side, there's a great deal that has gone wrong. But fundamentally, she's been brought down because she's made bad strategic decisions. And what do you think the next leader needs to do at a minimum to remake the case for independence, as you say, not just a referendum. Do you think it's a good idea? Because there'll be lots of debate now between her would-be successors about how to push for independence, you know, everything from a, uh, a wildcat referendum to uh, the dissolution of Holyrood in October is an idea that people were talking about yesterday. Do you think that now is the time to put all of that to one side, given that there's no clear route to an independence referendum, and instead focus on governing Scotland? The party outside of Parliament and the party parliamentary group have now got to get real. We have to have a major reset. Put aside all the nonsense that we can force a referendum on people and that we can jigger around with Holyrood and get new elections. Fundamentally, the last poll, I think, put us where we really are. And that's exactly where we were in 2014, around about 44 45%. What the party and the government have to do is sit down now and do the policy on economics. Actually produce a policy that we can go to people and build up support for a very substantial yes indicating. Now, that would be around between 55, 58, 60%. If you get to that and you campaign for that, then there is no government at Westminster, which is a democratic organisation, could gain see you the right to hold a referendum on independence. And what the party's got to do is leave all this fiddly stuff aside and concentrate now on economic policy. And we don't have it at the present time. And until we get it, we will not go from 44 to 55. You know, that's the fundamental, and that's what we've got to get real, and that's what the new leader has to understand. Who might be the person to to do that? Is it a good thing? I know you've said Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon before her ran cults of personality, which meant, you know, detailed and honest and open discussions over policymaking were difficult. Is it a good thing that very few of the contenders to succeed, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, are particularly well-known well, I, I won't name anyone, because if I named anyone, that would be them damned. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm the chief dissident in the party. I certainly wouldn't have any of the people round about Nicola Sturgeon, because they've been acolytes. They haven't been leaders and not shown any significant quality and depth of leadership. So the party's got a problem at the present time, who we actually elect. I think the important thing is, that whoever is the new leader understands that the cult of personality is extremely damaging to an organisation. 
what's happened under the cult of personality is that the party outside of the parliament counts for nothing. Now, if the party was in a better position to be critical of the leadership, a party which meets people day in and day out, would have been able to tell Nicola Sturgeon, this gender recognition bill really is dynamite. Don't go there. Leave it alone. But because the party doesn't count, it gets told, you think the way I think, that's the big mistake. And that's what happens in the, you know, the, the culture of personality. And I hope the new leader has learned that lesson. Just finally, Jim, still as many, many years ago, you were a Scottish Labour MP. They were celebrating yesterday, thinking this was the, the best day they've had in, in some decades. Do you think they're wrong? No, I think they have an opportunity. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that, and I say that objectively. But Labour still has a problem. Labour has produced nothing on the constitutional side beyond simply defending the status quo. And Gordon Brown's ideas that he brought forth really don't meet uh, Scottish needs, even in a devolutionary setting. We need much more significant power. And I mean, I, I tell my, my colleagues in the SNP, if the Labour Party came up with devil max for Scotland, then the SNP would be in much more difficulty than they were going to be at the present time. Well, I think that answers the question of who, what and where next for the SNP. Until next week, at least. You heard from Katie Balls, political editor of The Spectator, Kieran Andrews, political editor of The Times Scotland, Dr Emily Gray, head of pollsters Ipsos Scotland, and Jim Sillers, the SNP grandee. Now it's time for What If, our new feature on the counterfactuals that could have changed the course of British political history. Today, I speak to Nick Thomas-Simmons, the Labour Shadow Trade Secretary and biographer of Harold Wilson, to ask the question, what if Hugh Gateskill had lived? Hello, Nick. Hello, Patrick. Very good to join you. Thank you very much for joining us. Right, let's get straight into it. Hugh Gateskill dies suddenly in 1963. Had that not happened, Harold Wilson doesn't then become leader and then prime minister. Is that the most immediate consequence? That's the most immediate consequence because Hugh Gateskill was, at that point, very secure in his position as Labour leader. I don't think anyone seriously doubted that but for his untimely death in January 1963, he would have led Labour into the next general election. And Gateskill was seen as part of the post-war generation, uh, he'd been Chancellor under Clement Attlee, of course. Harold Wilson presents himself as a fresh face, a man of the age, spoke of the white heat of technology, you know, made much of his Merseyside roots as, the, as Beatlemania kicked in. Do you think it's harder for Hugh Gateskill to win, given his baggage in 1964? I think it would have been more difficult. I mean, I, I looked in advance of coming on, Patrick, at the approval ratings for the two of them, because, of course... The Gallup polling is still available. It is available in a couple of volumes. And in December of 1962, looking at the public rating him as a good leader, 52% thought that he was versus 27% against, which is pretty good, actually. That's a positive rating of 25 when he'd been leader at that point for seven years. So that is good for Gateskill. But Harold, a year later, in December 1963, and this is, of course, after the famous white heat of technology speech in the October, looking at the public ratings for him, 65% rated him as a good leader, 
and only 14% didn't. So Harold, the fresh face, the, the person who exemplified change in the early 1960s, did have far better personal ratings. And of course, it was a very narrow election result in 1964. It was only an overall majority of four. And in the popular vote, Labour's margin of victory was less than 1%. So I think it's because of the narrowness of the victory, there is a universe in which Gateskill fell slightly short, I think. And is it possible or likely, do you think, say that happens, Harold Wilson becomes leader anyway? You know, he's already challenged Hugh Gateskill for the leadership unsuccessfully in 1960. He's seen as the face of the, the Bevanite wing of the party, the left wing of the Labour Party. Do you think... Does Hugh Gateskill hang on? If Hugh Gateskill does hang on, rather, um, he faces a leadership challenge from Harold Wilson uh, sooner rather than later again. Yeah, if Gateskill had lost in 1964, then I've no doubt he would have faced a leadership challenge. And I think the factors that made Harold Wilson the favourite in early 1963 wouldn't have changed. In other words, there's there's no threat to the left. So Harold essentially hoovers up the left vote of the parliamentary party plus is very credible to the centre plus the main candidate of the the right of the parliamentary party George Brown there were serious doubts about in 1963 and I see no reason why those same doubts wouldn't have existed over a year later. Let's talk about two big geopolitical questions Gateskill and Wilson had to grapple with during this period. The first is Europe. Gateskill described a European community as the end of the British state in 1962. If he had lived, do you think, if he had lived, say, we're doing counterfactual on counterfactuals, but a Gateskill premiership, do you think that puts, uh, puts a block on or makes much less likely Britain ever entering the EU? I, I think that had Hugh Gateskill become Prime Minister, it's very difficult to see how he would have moved away from that 1962 speech, you know, the end of a thousand years of history, he said. And of course, Harold Wilson did make in, uh, in the late 1960s an application to join the then EEC that was rebuffed by uh, de Gaulle. But if you look at the two, in 1962, they both give speeches. Harold's is much more nuanced in terms, he, he, he uses a phrase in the House of Commons about how he could see benefits to the UK being inside the uh, EEC. Gateskill's language just doesn't allow for that kind of flexibility. And I think that is uh, definitely a difference b between the two. And I, I can't see how a Gateskill government would have made that second application to join. And I want to put another um, counterfactual to you that uh, I've got from listener Jack Tyndale. He says, I think that some sort of British entanglement in Vietnam, obviously Harold Wilson uh, very definitely kept Britain out of the Vietnam conflict, much to Lyndon Johnson's uh, displeasure. He says, I think that some sort of British entanglement in Vietnam would be the biggest divergence between him and Wilson. If Gateskill is Prime Minister, are there British troops in Vietnam, do you think, Nick? You you can see a scenario where that happened, and I, th I think what I mean Gateskill, Gateskill and Wilson are both Atlanticists. I think it's it's not fair to say that Harold wasn't an Atlanticist. Just Harold was far more subtle in how he handled Vietnam, because of course Harold did it back the uh, American position in public. What he did not do was go beyond diplomatic support. He wasn't willing to go that step further and commit. Uh, troops. The other question in that, though, is a question of party management, because uh, there was a great deal of opposition to even Harold's position 
in the Parliamentary Labour Party of, of verbal support. And Gate, Gateskill, if you look at Gateskill's style of leadership, if you look at him in terms of the, the budget in 1951, where Bevan, Wilson and Freeman end up resigning over prescription charges in the NHS, mm. ostensibly that's the reason, Gateskill wouldn't compromise on it. Similarly, if you look at some of Gateskill's speech, I think you just played the clip of his 1960 speech talking about uh, unilateralism. He was he was someone who took very strong positions, whereas Harold was more of a more of a unifier across the party, more of a manager across the party. So you could see a scenario on Vietnam where Gateskill took a, a a stronger position, certainly. And more broadly, as you say, Harold Wilson, um, he's much derided for this now. Your recent biography, Harold Wilson, the winner, seeks to correct this record or revise this record, much derided as a, a deft party manager and little else, you know, a man without principle who, in his efforts to have a consensual Labour Party that papered over the cracks of its divisions, um, you know, didn't really advance any principle. Do you think the inverse is true of Hugh Gates, that the Labour Party he leads, does he should he live in 1963, is much more riven with with uh, with much more obvious explicit splits. Well, I think I mean, I mean as you know, Patrick, I've challenged that that sense of Harold as not having principles and pointed to to a number of things that he achieved. But in terms of Hugh Gateskill, there is no doubt whatsoever that his approach to party management was very different. Um, we, you know, he, he tended to be someone who was willing to to take on the party. I mean, to, to move to another example, take the attempt to rewrite clause four of the Labour Party constitution, which is that commitment to nationalisation that appeared in the Labour Party constitution, where Harold, again, took a far more nuanced position on it. Gateskill, although he was to fail in the endeavour, took a very strong position on it and was willing to countenance the failure to achieve what he wanted. So there's no doubt whatsoever there would have been that difference in party management. And I do think in the 1960s in particular, had Gateskill been prime minister, he would have found party management a lot more difficult with that particular style, I think. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Times Redbox Politics podcast. I'll be back for one more show tomorrow. And in the meantime, make sure you like, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.